I want to uh, share a word this morning. Uh, in June, I ministered before you, and I shared a message on the Great Commission, the Harvest, and me, or you. And today, I want to do part two of that message. And I want to come maybe from a different perspective than you've thought about. When we, In the first message in June, we talked about and we identified several things. We identified who we are in Christ Jesus. One of the things, if, how many of you remember, uh, Brother J. Val, I know you'll remember, uh, uh, the verse of Scripture that we had uh, uh, in the, the glass window in the old sanctuary. Do you remember what it said? Talked about we are co-laborers together. And so in that message in June, I talked about how that we are co-laborers. We are uh, together, working together in the Great Commission as we've all been commissioned by Christ. We are a part of the harvest. We identified that the Great Commission, what the Great Commission is, how it relates to us. We also identified that the harvest has already begun and that the workers are few, and that yet the harvest can still be accomplished by co-laboring together with other believers. We also identified what the harvest looks like, and we talked about some very current statistics about how that there are thousands are coming to Christ every day across the world through uh, many different efforts, missions efforts, church efforts, congregational efforts, organizational efforts, Many are coming together, and we are seeing also that, that in this harvest, we, we have identified that the number of unreached people groups is very quickly diminishing, meaning that the word is going forth at a greater pace than ever before, and that it is actually possible to reach the harvest by the end of this generation. That's what we talked about. But today, I, I want us to explore another element of our role in the Great Commission and the harvest. And that is defending the faith and, I, and, and our faith, the faith, the word of God, the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the inerrant word of God, the Bible. You say, well, how does, what does that have to do with the Great Commission? Well, in order for us to be able to be tools in the hand of God, we have to be solidified in our own relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Solidified to the extent that the love of God in your heart is settled. There is no question about the love of God in your heart. It has to be settled. Today we're looking at the little epistle of Jude. It's 25 verses long, and yes, I'm going to take the time to read all 25 verses. Okay? But before we get that, I want us to be careful and, that, and to say that we must be serious-minded about our faith in Christ and that we don't see the Great Commission as the Great Omission. It would appear, though, that across the body of Christ, and I'm not necessarily talking about this local body. When I talk about the body of Christ, we're inclusive in that, but I'm talking about today in a broad sense around the world, the body of Christ, there would appear as if the church, the body of Christ as a whole, has kind of reversed the Lord's order from go, witness, teach, and disciple to an agenda of social action on a whole host of topics and issues. Some have gone to the extreme of building mansions for their own comfort and their own glory. What I'm saying is that the gospel in some circles has been cheapened the faith that was once, and Jude, this is a quote from Jude, the faith that was once delivered to the saints is no longer taken seriously. We see throughout church history that the body of Christ, Christians, have been attacked. If you look in the book of Acts in chapter 7, verse 57 through 60, you'll see that stone, uh, Stephen is stoned to death. He is the first Christian martyr. He was contending... What was he dying for? Why did he die? I, you know I like interactions, so talk back at me. What, what, what did he die for? His faith in Christ. And specifically, who was he contending with? More specific, oh, There you go, Brother John. The religious community. 
the religious community. It wasn't the sinner he was contending with. I mean, that could be debatable. It could be that the religious community was sinful. And sinners, maybe, well, Jesus was pretty hard on them, wasn't he? But we see that he was contending. He was arguing with the Sadducees, Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. And they stoned him. He was the first Christian martyr. So the very next chapter, very first verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that a great wave of persecution swept over the church in Jerusalem, causing all believers in the city of Jerusalem to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. All the believers except the apostles, it says. Now, think geographically for a minute so that you kind of get a picture of understanding what is this scattering all about? What does that mean? That, that uh, they, they worked, but during the day they ran out of town? No. It means that their homes were lost, their livelihoods were lost, and many forms uh, within the city, and Judea is to the south, Samaria is to the north, and so you, you've got a, a, the nation of Israel today kind of covers that same area. You've got about a 100-mile uh, long nation, about 50 miles wide, and so they were scattered from the city throughout that, those two regions. In chapter 12 of the book of Acts in verses 1 through 5, we see that King Herod Agrippa killed the Apostle James, who was the brother of John. And in the same swell swoop, he also imprisoned Peter. He saw that the killing of the Apostle James so in, delighted the people that he arrested Peter with the same purposes, and that was to uh, take him out. Let's fast forward a few hundred years into the Dark Ages. Men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale they suffered great persecution for their faith in Christ, mainly because of their desire and the work in translating the Word of God into English. These are just two examples uh, of, of men in, in England and in Britain in the English Empire, and we see that they suffered great persecution because they wanted the common people to be able to have the Word of God. What we take for granted... What we take for granted, and more than likely you've got dozens of Bibles in your home. Did you know that men were burned at the stake because they desired to have the Word of God in the hands of the common people? We see that another man was influenced by John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, and that man was Martin Luther. He translated the Bible into German in the Old Testament in 1522 and the New Testament in 1534. He also is known for something else, though. He spearheaded the Protestant Reformation because he was contending for the faith. And again, who was Luther contending with? Who were, who were the John Wycliffe and William Tyndale contending with? The church. The church. The religious leaders. There have been many martyrs since Stephen and the Apostle James. Millions have given their all for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you that like to read and want to check up on what I'm saying, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs about the martyrs of the early Christian church. Another book that found its way in my library a few years ago is the book Jesus Freaks by DC Talk. DC Talk is a, a Christian band. Okay? But... They wrote a book, Jesus Freaks. It's very current, right up to about 2015, 2016. And you'll get a sense of the worldwide persecution that's still rampant within the body of Christ or against the body of Christ around the world. But just this week, Pastor Evans and I were made aware of a report, a new report that shows that Christianity and Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. A study commissioned by the British government concludes that Christianity is by far the most widely persecuted religion in the world. It also warns that it's nearing genocide levels. Not only is the persecution of Christians spreading geographically around the world, but it's also increasing in its severity. There are many Christian agencies and organizations that stand and fight the world on a worldwide level, not just local or national, but a worldwide level. And because of that, world leaders are beginning to recognize and take, the serious, or take serious the threat of persecution and genocide of Christians very seriously. 
One such agency is the American Center for Law and Justice, who in just a few weeks will be arguing before the United Nations to defend the persecuted Christians and dying Christians around the world. Maybe you have experienced some form of persecution for your faith in Christ. I'm going to give you one very minor example from my own life. As a teenager, I was a shy, introverted, nerdy bookworm. Um, but I also loved Jesus. And I, I, I didn't talk a lot to a lot of people at school, but I thought, okay, one way I can let them know about Jesus is I'll carry my Bible to school. And so I carried it. I carried all my books from class to class and home. And so I made sure that the top book on the stack was my Bible. Well, I got teased terribly for that, for carrying my Bible, for representing Christ in that small way, but also for doing the things my peers didn't do, or they did, but I didn't do. I didn't do those kinds of things. Funny, we were talking about that this morning. I didn't do the kinds of things, the immoral lifestyle and the things that they did with the drinking and the drugs and all that kind of stuff. I didn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't have problems. No, I had problems too. I, I was teased that way. Maybe, maybe you've experienced persecution on your job. Maybe you've had to face uh, an unsaved boss or supervisor in some way. Maybe you've, you've been demoted or lost pay or lost a job. Um, you know, it, maybe in some small way. But, you know, we really live in a privileged society where we are. And we ought to thank the Lord that we have the opportunity to live where we are and how we are. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we just sit still. It doesn't mean that we just uh, take this for granted. We have to recognize, be cognizant of what is going on in our community, in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. We have to understand we have been silent too long. We have been quiet way too long, and we are bearing the fruit of, the, of, of those in actions over the years. And Pastor Evenson has discussed this in the past. There are many around the world who lose their lives because of their faith in Christ. I read a story this week uh, about a woman in Afghanistan who had come to Christ, who had a, a Bible, a New Testament. They'd had it hidden. And the Lord impressed her to share her scripture and her salvation with her little sister, but they were in a Muslim home. And the father began to notice a change in the life, the, the actions, the, attitude, the attitudes and behavior of the younger sister and knew that there was an influence of Christianity in some way in her life. And he used the little sister to find out it was the big sister that was sharing Christianity with her. Under the Muslim law, there is what is known as honor killing. And her older brother killed the, large, the bigger sister, his, his sister, for sharing her faith in her New Testament with her little sister. That kind of thing goes on all around the world every day, and we often don't know what's going on. The New Testament epistle of Jude addresses and challenges Christians, us, to defend the faith. Jude was originally planning to write his epistle on the salvation of Christ that we all enjoy, but he was constrained by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to change his message, to challenge Christians, to fight the good fight of faith, and to defend the faith against severe attacks. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Jude chapter 1, because there's only one, and verse 1. Now, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Most of you know by now I, I prefer that translation. So uh, if you have King James, great, or whatever you have, just follow along. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. Notice that last phrase. We're going to come back to that. Verse 2, may God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. This is a key verse, verse 3. Dear friends, I have been eagerly writing, planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find I must write about something else. 
urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once and for all to his holy people. Once and for all. One message, one way. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows you to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus Christ rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but he later destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God also has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people, false teachers, who claim authority from their dreams, they live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place while Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. I'd like to have been in on that conversation. But these people scoff at things they do not understand, talking about false teachers. They, like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed like who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their own rebellion. When these people eat, talking about false teachers, when these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, the Lord's supper and the love feast they had, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They're like clouds billowing over the land without giving any rain. They're like trees in autumn that are doubly dead. They don't bear fruit, and they've been pulled up by the root. They're like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen. The Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones. That's, you're one of them. To execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of, of all the ungodly things they've done. And for all the insults the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, complainers, living only to satisfy their desires they brag loudly about themselves. They flatter others to get what they want. But you, dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times, there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Think about that. They only follow natural instincts because God's spirit isn't in them. So if God's spirit is in them or in you, what will you follow? His spirit, his leading, and not your natural instincts. Notice he says, but you, dear friends, must build up each other in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. So there is a way, there are two things we can do to stay safe in his love. That's 
Read and pray. He just identified them in verse 20. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. Now all glory, look at verse 24. This is a doxology, a hymn of praise. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all times, in the present, and beyond all times. In other words, from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Amen. Now, who is this Jude? Who, who is this gentleman that writes this little epistle? He identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, the only brothers listed in the New Testament by the name of Jude or Judas and James are the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. If you look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, or Mark chapter 6, verse 3, you will see the the brothers of Jesus listed by name. There are four half-brothers. Jesus had four half-brothers. So Mary, after, Mary and Joseph had their own children after Jesus was born. Okay? And we see that he had four brothers. Jude is one of them. James is another. Now, it's important to note that Jude does not identify his biological relationship with Jesus. Notice, he says, that's not the source of my authority. It's not because I have a biological connection to him that I have authority. It's because I have a spiritual relationship with him. I'm his slave. He's my master. Okay. So rather than that, that's the source of his authority. But then why does he mention his brother James? He states his biological relationship with his brother James. And we know that James was the brother of Jesus. And we also, now this is not the same James, the Apostle James, that was killed, okay? This is a different James. But we also know that James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the Jerusalem church. It's probable that James, or Jude, mentions James because James was a prominent leader and helps to identify Jude as his brother and also helps identify who he is. Now, James's epistle, or excuse me, Jude's epistle is kind of a brief but very hard-hitting. I just read it to you. It's kind of direct, isn't it? It's kind of hard-hitting. Okay? Uh, and then, so this message today is not necessarily meant to be hard or hard-hitting, but I do want to make a point, and that is, is that we must know what we believe. We must stand firm on that belief, and we must not be shaken by it, uh, by anything that the devil will throw at us. If we do, what happens? If we shake, if we, we get off our solid foundation of Jesus Christ, what happens? We fall off the rock. And what happens when you fall off the rock? You could potentially lose, if you don't return, you could lose your eternal life. Okay? So this is a hard-hitting little letter, but it's written to warn the community of Christians against false teachers who were blatantly, and I'm going to throw out a big word here, they were blatantly antinomian. Now, that's a real fancy word, antinomianism. It's a fancy word that teaches that salvation by grace is a license to sin. It was a variation of the grace of God, but it said that the more you sin, the more grace you have, so therefore you can sin and not be condemned. I agree, no. But that was the teaching in the first century church. Do you know that, that that teaching is still alive today and doing well? The false teachers taught that grace was a license to sin, that grace was a get-out-of-jail-free card. This means that they openly and contemptuously denied the original doctrine of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the apostles. 
In other words, realizing the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, the person and the nature, they denied who Jesus Christ is. You say, how can they do that? Well, these false teachers were dividing the church. They were telling them what to believe and how to behave. Jude describes these would-be leaders in verses 4, 16, and 18 as immoral. In verse 4, they pervert the truth. Verse 14 and 15, they're destined for divine judgment. They're dreamers, he said in verse 8. And that means what? What does that mean? That means if you go back into the original Greek language, that word dreaming and dreaming is not just because they had beans for dinner, okay? But they were, they were using mere imagination. They were using false or foolish fancies. They were using freakish notions to come up with their doctrines. It was not founded on the word of God. They would use their dreams, using their mere imaginations to come up with these things. He said there are clouds, in verse 12, that don't give any rain. He said they're exposed as not having God's spirit in them, in verse 19. Now, he exposes them as not having God's spirit in them. So that hints that they were presenting themselves as if they did have God's spirit in them. So that meant what? They were false prophets, okay, false teachers. And so, in other words, they were presenting and pushing a doctrine that divided the church, that taught them how they could or could not behave. And we see they were using grace as a license to sin. This is very, very close to another doctrine we know as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an extremely dangerous heresy. It came into the church in the second century. So you see, those they said they did not have the Spirit of God in them, Jude said, but they were pretending as if they did. They were presenting themselves if they did. So in other words, they were presenting themselves as spiritual when they really were not. He said they were dreamers. They were not spiritual. So these, these, these dreamers were the forerunners of the Gnostic gospel, the Gnostic doctrine, false teaching of the second century. The Bible refers to the errors of Gnosticism in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where a reference is made to those who denied that Christ had come in the flesh. In other words, Gnosticism draws on materials from the teachings and the mythologies of Greece, Egypt, Persia, and India, and also from the philosophies of those same nations. The aim of Gnosticism was to reduce Christianity to a philosophy, not a relationship. It related it. Gnosticism said that Christianity is, is related to various pagan teachings as well as to the Old Testament, which they distorted. So you see, they would... How, how does Satan operate? How did he operate in the garden? Deception, but he used partial truth, didn't he? Okay, all right. That tactic, he learned well. He knows that tactic works. It will deceive people. And we see that the false teachers in Jude and the first century church and in the Gnostic uh, doctrine of the second century, that the church, it, by the end of the second century, Gnosticism had wasted the Christian church. So we see that they would, they would use tactics that were sly, cunning, and subtle. They weren't just blatant enemies. The term Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So they claimed, Gnostics claimed, special or secret knowledge. That knowledge then could only be possessed by those humans who were spiritual. Okay? So in other words, what did Gnosticism create? Classes of men. Classes of of humankind. They said that most humankind were in the lower class. They were utterly hopeless in endless bondage to Satan and to their own lusts. 
Now, this is one of the most worst features, most damaging features of Gnosticism in that they elevated a limited number of people into a specially privileged class. The rest were unredeemable and destined for destruction. What is that against? That is totally and completely against and contrary to the, cre the teachings of Christianity and Christ. Gnosticism denies the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They deny he came in the flesh. They say that flesh is matter. Matter is evil. So therefore, Jesus was not born in human flesh. He only remained a spirit. He came to the earth as a spirit. He went back to heaven as a spirit before the crucifixion. So that meant that the man on the cross was just that, a man. And they deny do you know that that doctrine today is still very much alive? It has a new broad category name. It's called New Age. Same doctrine, same false teaching, and it's alive in our world today. And you say, wow, okay, you've given us some good information, so what does that mean? What, what, what's, it, what's it got to do with me? Well, I'll tell you. Because we're facing the exact same situation as the first century church. Jude addressed it in the first century, and we're dealing with it in the 21st century. His warning was not just for the church of his day, but for all Christians from that date of A.D. 65 when he penned that letter until Christ returns. But there's another reason it's important to us. The nature and the pattern of the attack is not necessarily from without, but it's from within. Jude said that the false teachers who claim special spirituality or knowledge is subtle and cunning. Christians who do not read their Bible, who do not pray, open themselves to those subtle devices of the false teacher and the enemy, and they very slowly move away from the gospel. Christians who move away from the great commission of go and witness, teach, and disciple move to an agenda of social action that's not Christ-centered. Jesus was greatly concerned for the needs of man all around him. I mean, what did he spend most of his time doing? Touching the needs of men and women, boys and girls, feeding the poor, healing. How many times does it say in the New Testament he'd go to a village or a town or a city and he healed them all? All right, we ask you, we, we promote in our bulletin and other places, we want to hear your testimonies. We want to know what God's done for you this week and, and, and healed your body or touched you in some way blessed you financially or whatever. We want to hear about that. We want to praise the Lord for it. But think about this. There were people who were moving away. They, they were not following the gospel. They didn't pray. You say, the basics. You always talk about the basics, Pastor Rush. Yes, because they're basic and we need to accomplish them. Just as you've got to have the love of God settled in your heart, You've got to have the daily discipline of Bible reading and prayer down. You've got to have it. Why? Because Jude says there are going to be those who will come against you with subtlety and cunning devices. And if you don't know the truth of the word, a partial truth will deceive you. So we must understand that is why it is so important. Notice that Jude was going to change his message, or he was going to preach his message on one thing and, and write his book and share his message on the salvation that we all enjoy, but the Holy Spirit constrained him and moved him to write about how we must defend the faith. And the condemnation, he said, of those people was set. So Jude writes to this community of Christians in order to warn them about the crafty false teachers who had infiltrated the church. We have all kinds of false doctrine that has infiltrated the body of Christ around the world. What is the faith 
that God entrusted once and for all to his holy people. What is that? What is that faith? It's the faith that consists of the gospel message. What's the gospel message? The message that Jesus himself proclaimed and his disciples proclaimed following him. It's the fixed, the unalterable truth that's given by the Holy Spirit and it's embodied in the New Testament. There is one way to eternity and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith is more, though, than just an objective truth. It's also a way of life. You see, the, the false teachers that Jude said, they'll, they'll worm your way in with a half-truth, but then they'll tell you that grace is a license to sin. So then they were dictating lifestyle. In other words, that Christians' lives were no different than sinners' lives. So we see that Jude is saying, yes, the faith is more than just the gospel. It is a lifestyle. It's a life committed to the gospel. You'll live your life according to the teachings and principles of God's word. So it's in a way of life. It's to be lived in love and purity. But the, the, king, the faith is one more thing. It's also a kingdom. Faith is a kingdom which comes in power to baptize all believers in the Holy Spirit, that they may proclaim the gospel to all nations with signs and miracles and wonders and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you see, it goes right back to what? The Great Commission. It goes right back to it. Jude challenges us to defend the faith. The Greek word here is epagonzomai, which literally means to struggle, to suffer, to be under great stress, or to fight a fight. Now, I know that that's not a whoop message, is it? Nobody wants to struggle, suffer, or be under stress, or fight a fight. But what Jude is telling us is that we must exert ourselves to the utmost to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ to defend God's word, to defend our faith in Christ. And even though it may cost us something, we must deny ourselves. And if need be, accept sacrifices that may come along the way. Because how many of you know God is your source? How many of you have been in a dark place and you know he's brought you out. How many of you have been in a place financially? You didn't know where your supply was coming from. But all of a sudden, God came through and he provided. I have. I've been there. I was, Becky and I were uh, newlyweds. And we, we'd been married about three or four years. And our, our, she was pregnant. And, and I lost my job. Went nine months with no job. She worked full-time. Well, actually, no, you weren't pregnant. You had already uh, delivered. And I stayed home and raised uh, Trey the first six months of his life. I didn't have a job. Do you know what? During that time where we had lost half of our income, do you know I wasn't laid on a bill? I was never laid on rent. Do you know that I had more money in savings then than I probably have right now? Why? Because God proved Himself faithful. You do not have to worry. This me Ooh. You do not have to worry. This message may be frightening. It may be difficult to understand, but you must know you're standing on the rock. He is your source. He is your supply. He will keep you in difficult times. Hallelujah. Defending the faith means that we must take a direct stand against those within the visible church and without the visible church, who deny the authority of the Bible, who distort the truth of faith and is presented by Christ and the apostles. We must understand it's the only message that brings redemption. If your allegiance is to Christ and to the full New Testament faith, then you will never ever allow the message to be weakened or compromised by some other authority, some other distorting tr uh, falsehood. You'll never try to explain away its power and its promises. 
I was thinking this morning of my favorite verse of scripture. It's not in my notes. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Boy, that God gave me that verse in a difficult place in my life. I needed to know he was going to be with me. And he gave me that verse. Another version of that says, Commit your works unto the Lord and your plans will be successful. That's okay, but I like the other ones. Your thoughts will be established. Your thoughts will be established. Okay. The false teachers turn the grace of God into immoral behavior and lifestyles. The Greek word here means unrestrained vice or sexual freedom. Jude denounces certain people who teach that salvation by grace allows professed believers to indulge in serious sin and not be condemned by God for it. Jude tells them and us today in verses 8 through 19, beware of teachers whose behavior or teaching includes such things as licentious behavior. Remember that word last week from lasciviousness that pastor gave us last week in the message? Okay, it basically means that you're morally unrestrained. He said, watch out for those that are disrespectful or reject authority. Watch out for those that are greedy and love of money. Watch out teachings or doctrine that makes empty promises, that strays away from biblical truth. Stay away from those who grumble and complain, that are critical, divisive, and destructive behavior they give. Stay away from those whose motivation is only personal gain or self-promotion, and they do it by flattery of others when it's to their own advantage. Do you see parallels between those verses and those things and what we see around us today in the 21st century? Do you? Do you see parallels? Well, I want you to think about a few things that we've seen and experienced in the last few years. I never thought I'd see some of these things in all my days. The redefinition of marriage, the teaching and acceptance by many that there are many other ways to salvation and heaven rather than by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The influence of immoral behavior through all forms of media. When I was a kid growing up, you didn't have all these ways we are connected. Didn't have that. I heard a parent this week say, I wish my child could just go outside and play. I thank God I had the privilege to go outside and play. My mama could call me and holler for me, and I'd come running. I could be three streets over, and I could hear my mama. Now we're afraid to send them outside. We just send them to their bedroom with a game that we don't know what is on. We've seen the blatant, open attack on Christians and Christianity as intolerant and unknowing. They think we're stupid. Think about that. How have you felt these influences? How have you dealt with these influences? What about your kids and grandkids? Do you really know what your children and grandchildren are being taught in school? I want you to see the article. There's an article in the lobby on the right as you go out. It's called A Parenting Roadmap for Social Media. You, if you've got kids or grandkids, you need to pick this up and read it. It talks about parenting as much like a pendulum. If you don't have to be this way, it doesn't have to be this way, a learner's permit, driving school, rules for the road. It's great tips as parents on how you can guide your kids through social media. Pick it up. But have you felt these things? Have you, have you taken the time to read what your kids read or watch what your kids watch? When was the last time you talked about faith in Christ with your family? Have you given your kids the opportunity to share their struggles and their, what they're dealing with socially? How many of you got teenagers? A few of you, Okay. I challenge you to sit down this week and have a five-minute conversation with them and ask them what's going on in your world. You might just be blown away by what they talk about. You see, the enemy of our souls is fighting hard. He is contending and defending his beliefs, and he wants you to join him. And many of us are not aware of what he's doing. 
Jude says we are to contend and defend the faith. That does not mean we fight physically. No, but that does mean that we defend the faith wherever we go. It's a spiritual battle. Jude gives us six ways on how we as believers can defend and contend for the faith. Number one, by holding to the finality of God's revelation through Jesus Christ. That is number one. Do not let anybody dissuade you in any way from thinking there's another way other than Jesus Christ. There is a tendency to minimize the finality. You say, well, that's defending the faith? Yeah, you're holding your ground. You're holding your ground. You're understanding. There, there is a, a tendency to minimize the finality of the truth of God's word. In the academic world, we have those who contend that there are many roads to heaven or salvation. They contend that Jesus isn't the only way. Christian believers must agree that the truth delivered by Jesus is final and there is no subject to change, is not subject to change. I've heard some stories and uh, Aaron Quillen and others, we were talking not long ago about uh, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Okay, and that class he's teaching, that's coming back up for adults shortly, so be watching your bulletin. But we were talking about how that academics, professors, teachers are pulling our kids away with sly forms of false doctrine. Number two, by keeping watch for false teachers and their teaching, verse 4 and verses 11 through 13, he said, because I, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Jude does not have patience with false teachers. Do you see that? He does not have patience with them. Neither should we. In Jude's day, the false teachers taught that the grace of God was cheap and that the Christians could do anything and be okay. They believed that the more you sin, the more grace you receive. Paul very strongly refutes this same doctrine in Romans chapter 6. Jude mentions three false teachers whose examples should be rejected. Cain in Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, verse 23, uh, 24. And Korah in Numbers 16, 1 through 35. These three examples illustrate what? Attitudes of pride, selfishness, jealousy, greed, lust for power, and disregard for God's word that should be rejected. These are three examples from the Old Testament talking about the same faults that match the doctrines of the false teachers in the New Testament. So you see, it was not even new in the New Testament. It was old doctrine all the way back from the garden. Number three by growing in Christian maturity. Many years ago, Becky and I worked in a church, uh, over 30 years ago, worked in a church in western North Carolina. I won't say the church name, and I won't tell you what town. And we would have a testimony service at least once a week. And a person would stand up and testify every week the same thing. I thank God that I've been in the way for 40 years. Now, what he meant, what his thoughts were, he'd been in the way, capital W, the way, the gospel, the church of Jesus Christ. But what everybody else knew in that congregation is that he'd been in the way. He'd been a stumbling block. He had stopped many times people from moving and growing in faith. So you see, by growing in Christian maturity... When I, I told the Sunday school class this not long ago, when I was a teenager, I thought that it was salvation, sanctification, baptism, Holy Spirit. I thought, oh, wow, I got all of it. I've reached the top. And then I realized it was more like on your mark, get set, go. And it was just the beginning. What am I trying to say? I don't care if you're the youngest or the oldest in this room. You must 
always mature in Christ. In other words, we must all continue to learn. We must all continue to grow in Christ. That's what he's telling us in verse 20 and 21. You must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you pray in tongues? All right. You're going to find that's what builds you up every day. That's what strengthens you every day. That in the word of God and showing mercy. Christians must grow in maturity every day. The discipling process never ends. Just as a soldier must be well-equipped and trained for war, every Christian must be trained for by salvaging victims from Satan and the world. Here's one way to defend the gospel. Salvage. What does that mean? What, do you, what, what, what picture, word picture comes to mind? Salvation or taking them back from the devil. How many of you have got kids, grandkids, stepkids, nieces, nephews, uncles, family members that are just over the precipice and you need to salvage back? There are many, there are still many sinners who need the touch of Christ. The Great Commission is still active. It has not been recalled. Those under the bondage of Satan and the world need to be rescued, delivered, and salvaged. It is a shame that some of us, when we were first converted, were lunatics for the Lord through soul winning. When we became so-called professional Christians, we abandoned the art and lifestyle of soul winning. But folks, what have we been saying around here for over a year now? Just tell your story. Just tell your testimony. Touch somebody. You can work and, and minister to somebody I can't. You have a sphere of influence I don't. So reach out in that sphere of influence. Number five, stay away from sin. Verse 23b, the second half says, hating the sin that contaminate their lives. Hating the sins. All right, hating the sins. Jude is, when, when Jude touched the subject of hating the sins that contaminate, he was really talking about those living in sin who claim to be working for the Lord. That made me think of a verse when I was studying this week. Jesus said, Lord, Lord, you know, we, we prayed in your name. We healed in your name. What did Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. Okay? Okay? They didn't have a relationship. Stay away. As believers, we must flee from anything that would tarnish our testimony. Lastly, by focusing... Here's a way you can contend for the faith, contend for your faith, contend for the faith, the, the gospel, the lifestyle, and the kingdom. It's by focusing on God alone. Jude ends his letter with the doxology, a beautiful hymn of praise that is very strong. It's one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of Scripture. Defending and contending for the faith requires God's power that can enable us as believers to stand firm and stand ready. God's power can enable us and keep us from falling prey to the devices of Satan. And he will present us faultless before the kingdom throne. As I said at the beginning... This message today is not to bring fear. It's not to bring worry. It is not to bring stress to anyone. But we must know what we are up against. We must recognize that we must defend the faith. And we are not to be overcome by any demonic opponents. Remember, I want you to, all right, I want you to look at verse 30. I tell you what, go back to 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave up him up for us all, won't he also give us everything also? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will, be, who, who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. What? Pleading for us. 
Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Notice that. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. It's not my word. I haven't given you anything today that's not out of that book. It's his word. It's his truth. And I want you to know we can stand firm in Christ. You have a solid foundation in Jesus Christ. I challenge you to go out this week and stand. Notice, I didn't say fight. All you got to do is stand. But you stand ready. Put your armor on and stand. Why do you just have to stand? Why do I say just stand and be ready? What's the obvious? Because the battle will come to you. The battle will come to you. But I want to encourage you today. Yes, those things are happening in our world. Yes, we're seeing Satan doing all he can do to win the souls. We're empowered. Read your word. Pray in the Spirit. And don't be fearful. Love, love as Christ loved. We do those three things. We will stand. We will We will. Be active in the Great Commission. We will see results in the harvest. Now we, we concentrate here a lot. We, we give money. We give of ourselves and our time. And we support missionaries all over the world. But don't forget, there's a mission field in your house. In your neighborhood. Work there. Start small. Work there. Be faithful there. And God will honor you and bring fruit to your efforts. Father, we love you and we thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, for the word today. Thank you, Father, Lord, for the challenge Jude gives us. He was writing to the first century Christians and to the 21st century Christians. Lord, we will stand firm. We will not compromise the unalterable word of God. We will stand upon the principles of your word. Father, Lord, there is one way to eternal life. No matter what men may say, Father, Lord, we know there's one way. You came. You offered yourself as the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. You didn't just come in a spirit. You came in the flesh to experience everything we experience, but without sin. And that qualifies you to be our offering, our sacrificial lamb. And Lord, you did it. Lord, your, your, your whole goal in coming was to die, to accomplish that purpose. Father, Lord, that we might have and be reconciled, redeemed, and back in a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, today. If you are worrisome or you feel challenged today, or maybe you're not comfortable in the Word, or maybe you're not uh, uh, talking and speaking in tongues and praying in tongues as you should. Or maybe you're just worrisome about situations that are going on in life or if you need a, a healing in your body. Then I want our prayer teams to come. And uh, we've, we've had a word that's been given that there may be some here with chest pain and or someone also that has pain on the right side of your neck. If, if you're having chest pain or uh, pain in the right side of your neck, I want you to come with these uh, to the altar and be prayed for. But if 
If you, you just need encouragement in your faith, I want you to come to the altar. If you need to know without an assurity, uh, with full assurance in Christ and the Holy Spirit that he's here with you and he's going to help you fight the fight, then I want you to come for prayer. Father, we commit this altar time to you.